So Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me you, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundations. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Good morning. I'm going to have to give a little shout out to uh, Ben Coggin this morning because when he came to preaching team, I uh, only half jokingly said, hey, if you do the uh, sermon research for this chapter 17, I sure would appreciate it. And uh, so he took me up on it. So the next time I'm going to ask him to finish some work I have at the house since I went so well the first time. Um, one of the things that he pointed out that um, just makes a lot of sense when we think about the fact that Jesus often went aside by himself to pray. He would go up on a mountaintop, uh, get away from the disciples to pray. And yet in this particular passage, he's praying directly to his father. And he very intentionally does that um, with us as an audience and with them as an audience. Letting them in on essentially what Ben said, you know, this is kind of like Jesus' debrief. He's, he's done his mission with his father. He's now to the point that he's referring to it all as past tense. And so he's giving his mission debrief as well as laying out the plans, how they're going to go forward. And we get to have a front row seat. One of the things that we're going to notice in there are the motives. It's one thing that someone does something or says something. Makes a whole lot of difference whether or not we understand why. So uh, one thing I will warn you of, there's a lot of repetition in this prayer. Um, my wife and I had an extended session yesterday trying to work out the details of this sermon because the first time I read it to her, you know, about halfway through her eyes kind of rolled back in her head and I realized she had just given up, you know, it was, it was done. And, um, so I found out that not in her words, but in mine, I had severely overpacked the suitcase. All right. And just completely was dumping way too much information. So, uh, in trying to find a... Uh, a path this morning for us. One of the things I want us to lean into is motive. All right. Um, there are 14 instances of the words, so that, 
in this passage. Now, these words are a clear indication that you're getting ready to give the reason why you just said whatever you said. So if I said to you, stay here so that you don't get lost. Well, I've told you what the command is, stay here. But I've also said so that to let you know that I'm getting ready to give you the reason so that you don't get lost. So as we listen to the motives in this passage, let us remember um, that this is important to Jesus that we understand not only what he's telling us, but why he's telling us. And so um, in the end, what I really want us to see, I'll just tell you where we're going to the end, and you, you can tell me later whether you think we actually got there. But in the end, I want us to see that what Jesus is actually describing is like the full circle of the gospel. We're going to look at the whole gospel, begins with God's glory, it flows into Jesus's mission, and it results in believers experiencing God, and it culminates once again in God's glory. So stay focused on the words as we read through. Stay focused on the words so that, and listen carefully to what comes right after them. So we're going to start out in verse 5, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, glorify, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had before the world existed. In our CSB version, all of yours probably say, uh, this is a, a kind of entitled Jesus Prays for Himself. And so we're going to look at the, fir- at the first two so-that's that appear in this. Um, in the first one, uh, Jesus prays for himself. He says, reveals that the motive is the glory of God. So um, Jesus praying for himself, we've got to realize what the motive is. This is actually for his Father's glory. In verse 2, it says that the motive is eternal life to those whom God has given him. So we're two motives in, and Jesus has yet to pray for himself. In verse 3, he gives us the definition of eternal life. And if you look at that, that really deserves a sermon unto itself, uh, which we don't have time for this morning. But take a look at that, how he defines what eternal life is. And then in verse 4, he states a completed fact. And then in verse 5, he finally gets around to something that has to do specifically with him. So... Even as he's described to be praying for himself, there is only one instance where he prays for himself, and that's actually to receive back something that has already been his from the foundations. All right, From before the world began, he had glory with God for all of eternity past. And now he's just saying, I'm returning to that, and I'm looking forward to having it back. So we found two of the motives. Let's move on into this next passage. This is where it says he's praying for his disciples. So we want to be clear that we understand he's praying for the 11 that are there with him right now. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. 
So this is going to be the first of three times that Jesus prays with this specific motive. He wants his disciples to be unified. And I want you to hear real, let's make sure we're listening in detail. He wants them to be unified as he and his father are unified. So that's setting an extremely high bar. Then in verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that Scripture may be fulfilled. This is a difficult verse. Um, Joel covered a lot of the tension of Judas, his betrayal, and his eventual rejection of Jesus in an earlier sermon, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But I do want to caution us. Let's not build an entire theology off of one verse. Uh, One verse where Jesus specifically gives Judas the title, Son of Destruction, and refers to him as one that was lost. Let's be careful. We never know exactly what's going on in someone else's heart. Only God knows that. Scripture's continuing to be fulfilled all around us. As people, they choose the wide path, and they try to acquire what Jesus is offering by works. They walk in His ways, even though they never actually know Him. And sometimes they actually share in the Holy Spirit before they fall away. But we got to remember that God sees the heart. And so for us, it's a caution not to use our judgments, not to judge other people's hearts and their eternities, nor to judge the character of God by what's going on as we see someone we love who is wandering Tell God how much it hurts. Pray, definitely. But don't quit reasoning together with your Lord until you get to the place that you can trust Him with the outcome. And one final thought on this verse is that it's very obvious just how much we can count on Scripture. All of the prophecies and all of the promises will be fulfilled. And this is one of the Scriptures that reminds us of that. We get to our fifth motive in verse 13. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. You know, it's easy just to read right through that. It sounds spiritual, joy completed in them, but I want you to think about something. Joy is an incredibly powerful motive. It's a possession that Jesus himself shows us is worth dying for. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that lay before him, Jesus, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus desires his joy to be completed in his disciples, he's referring to the exact same motive that caused him to be obedient to the cross. Joy like this is a deep, abiding confidence that God is in control, and we wouldn't want it any other way. And it bears with it an emotion. It's accompanied by an emotion that is evident of complete trust in the Father. In verse 15, it seems, I just 
I, I, we were talking about the so that's, but right here, this I couldn't just run by this. This is a message that swirls within both religion and the world. This verse is, is a verse we might want to overlook just because of actually what it says. Our desire to be comforted in this world is strong. But in 15, he says, I am not praying that you keep them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I have to admit, at times, you know, my response to Jesus, if I were to just kind of blurt out what I was thinking, is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let, let's don't run past that, Lord. L- listen, I'm wanting protection from the world. I want very much for you to protect me from its pains and its sorrows and the chaos and, and a lot of times just downright insanity. Please, go back and pray that I be kept safe from disease and natural disasters and financial hardships and the death of loved ones and mean people. I prayed that a lot when I was in fifth grade. The real enemy has a weapon, and it is deception. Jesus is praying that God would be protected from the lies. If we miss our relationship with him, if we miss our purpose in this cosmic battle because we're seeking so hard to be comforted, then that's the real disaster. Last week, Jesus told his disciples that they would experience suffering in this world. And he didn't say the reason that they should take courage is is based on escaping suffering. He said that the reason that they should have the ability to take heart is based on the fact that he's conquered the world. He's brought the truth that actually renders the lies impotent. What is the truth in our suffering? Wanting to believe the truth is not victory. Do you hear me? Wanting to believe the truth is not victory. Repeating the truth over and over like a mantra is not victory. We've got to really look at ourselves and ask the hard question, do we believe it? Believing the truth is the only foundation for real victory. The gospel's clear. The justifying, sanctifying, transforming work of Jesus in my heart is the only way to believe the truth that gives me real freedom. And that's why he now shows the greatest weapon against the enemy is in verse 19. Let's read verse 17 and verse 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus is truth. The Father's word is truth, whether it's spoken, written, or sent to us fully human. How does Jesus sanctify himself if he's already the truth? The generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning for the use intended by its designer. So with the generic use, we can actually see a sanctified pen if you write with it. You can actually understand that a shoe is sanctified if you walk with it. It's the intended use of the designer. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see that he was sent as a human 
to properly function as the perfect fulfillment of the law, the perfect sacrifice for lawbreakers. Jesus both obeyed and completed the requirements of the covenant, and he paid the penalty for breaking the covenant. Do we really see that Jesus completely fulfilled it so that he was not required to pay the penalty, and yet then he turns around on our behalf and pays the penalty for breaking it? There has never been and never will be a human being more perfectly created for the purpose. Ooh. Let me stop. I just incredibly misspoke, okay? So that we don't preach a false gospel, please understand Jesus was not created. Jesus himself was not created, okay? He was created in human form, all right? He came in human form. Sorry about that. Oh, my goodness. He is the truth that sanctifies his followers. Belief in truth is our greatest offensive and defensive weapon. The enemy cannot stand it when we actually come to understand the truth. Education in the truth comes from God's written word. Scripture is such a treasure to us because it reveals the truth of the gospel as the foundation. And it sets the guardrails so that we can live in freedom with the Holy Spirit, knowing that we will not fall over into heretical thinking. So we must study it, because we must be able to identify the difference between the Spirit and a Spirit. I mean, we're told to test the spirits. The reason, I believe, is because the Spirit is one we want to listen to. And what we find ourselves doing sometimes is being distracted by all the other spirits. If we don't study the details of the authentic, how will we know when we are looking at a fake? All right, so we found six motives so far, and Jesus now continues his prayer in verse 20 through 26, revealing eight more motives that are all directly applicable to us, believers. The believers, he prays, <coughs> these were read earlier, uh, Micah read them earlier, so I, don't, I just want to point out some difficult grammar here. You're probably going to notice, if you've got a highlighter or a pen, you're probably going to notice that in those verses you can only find five so that's. All right? You've probably counted them already, and you're wondering where in the world I find eight. So let's look at verse 23 real quick. This actually implies three motives. So watch your commas uh, and your ands and look to see that it says that believers may be completely one, that the world may know God has sent Jesus, and that the world may know God loves believers the way he loves Jesus. And then if you look in verse 26, it actually has two. That the love the Father has loved Jesus with may be in believers, and that Jesus may be in believers. Okay, so in there, eight motives are implied. And there's a, there's a good bit of repetition here, and so this is the reason why I felt it would be better to break it down into three categories based on that motive. This helps us see Jesus' theme, what it is that he's repeating. The first one is that there is unity in believers. The second one is that believers' unity will testify to the world. And then the third one is that believers will experience Jesus and God. So in category one, believers' unity, look in verse 22. I have given them the glory you have given me so that 
they may be one as we are one. And remember, this has already been prayed once for his disciples. So that's the second time. And then the third time in verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Jesus began his prayers this way for his disciples, asking for unity. And he wants the unity that's actually equal to he and his father's unity. And now these two more times that he repeats it, he's praying for all believers. I hope we're getting the message. Jesus really sees importance. He's trying to help us understand unity is critical. All three of the motives for what comes next, all three of the motives for the world are empowered by the unity of believers. Category two, believers' unity testifies to the world. So if we look in verse 21, Father, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. From verse 23, believers may be completely one so that the world may know you have sent me. And again from verse 23, believers may be completely one so that the world may know you have loved them as I have loved, as you have loved me. So that the world may know that you, Father, have loved believers as you, Father, have loved me, Jesus Christ. Unity within the body of Christ is what's going to shock and confuse the world. It's going to shock and confuse them into recognizing that there is something here they do not have. I truly believe that this is critical to what made the gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean in the speed at which it did. They saw a community that they could not understand. They saw unity that they could not figure out how to attain. And it was so attractive that it pulled them in to want to know what was the truth behind all that. Any other outcome than unity is going to lead everyone else, the world out there, to the conclusion that we're no different than they are. It's going to render the church irrelevant to them. And I wish I could say this is just something I'm predicting. It's not. We've all watched it. Our unity matters so much that Jesus refers to it six times in his prayer. Before we move to the last category, look at that third motive from verse 23 with me. That the world may know the Father has loved believers just like he loves his Son. That, I mean, do we realize just how stunning that is? That, that God loves us the same way he loves Jesus? It's no wonder the world will be astounded by this truth. Listen, I speak to people every week who profess belief in Jesus Christ. But they don't believe that God loves them like he loves Jesus. It's a crippling lie when we know this truth but don't believe it. I mean, when you've just sinned, when you've just chosen rebellion against God, like when you can turn around and go, that's exactly what that was. That was sin. When you've just chosen that, you've just failed in that spot that you have failed so many times before. You know the hurt of that feeling. In that moment, how does God feel towards you? I mean, what's the real answer to that? 
Does he really feel the love he feels for his son? Or have you somehow been unclothed from Jesus' righteousness? Have you been thrown back into that state Adam found himself in, naked and hiding behind a bush? Is that what's going on? Is the confession of your sin an opportunity to thank God for Jesus? For the fact that that thing that you just did does not mean eternity apart from Him. That because of Jesus Christ, that thing that you just did is, yes, it is sin. But Jesus has covered it. Or is it just the point in time when you begin to doubt the righteousness that Jesus purchased for you? Do you begin to beat yourself up? Do you go down those rabbit trails? Is God disappointed for you, for the damage your sin will cost you and those he loves, for the blessings that you're refusing? Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's true. But does it feel true that actually what's going on is he's disappointed in you? That he's actually disappointed in who you are? That he's, that he's beginning to second-guess his adoption of you? We owe it to ourselves to look at what actually feels true because your truthful answer to this question is central to the gospel's transforming power in your life. You're going to find yourself right back in that hole time and time and time again until this truth becomes real. Are you still working to win God's favor, or have you discovered and come to the understanding that you are God's favored? It's going to make all the difference in the world whether you can experience what Jesus talks about in Category 3. Category 3, believers will experience Jesus and God. Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory. Goodness gracious. Isn't that what Moses asked for? Isn't that what God told him would kill him? See Christ's glory. From verse 26, I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them. If I'm reading that right, that says God's love for Jesus in me. And then again in verse 26, same, same statement, different, different motive. And this is just how Jesus simply says it, so that I may be in them. Jesus Christ in me. Jesus Christ's Spirit dwelling full-time in me. This is an experience of God. Our experience is to see Jesus' glory, to feel God's love of Jesus in ourselves, to experience Jesus in us. I so believe John Piper's right. We were created to glorify God by experiencing, experiencing Him by enjoying Him. See, and Paul agrees. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, Paul makes this astounding declaration. I mean, it's just crazy. 
For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him, by Jesus. I mean, this ought to rock our world. The entire fullness of God's nature has been poured into us by Jesus. Paul's echoing Jesus' own prayer here. And he's talking about what's happening, what's actually happening in believers. No less than the full experience of God in Christ Jesus is desired for us by our Creator. I mean, that's just stunning good news. Are we experiencing God? Are we experiencing His love for Jesus? Do we sense the presence of the Spirit of Jesus in us? If so, then we'll often see Jesus' glory in what God is doing in and around us. We will often feel God's love and pleasure And we will regularly marvel at the metamorphosis that that is causing in us. I mean, we will find ourselves in those moments where something has just happened. And I know myself. I remember my history. I know my patterns. But I will find myself in a situation where something happens. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is normally where I'm really blowing a gasket. You know, this is is normally where I'm bursting into tears. This is normally where I'm running off to beat myself up. But none of that stuff is happening. Who who have I become? I mean, this ought to be an astonishing revelation in us. I mean, just as crazy as the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. When he looks around and goes, I don't know how this happened. Okay, I was the green crawly thing. And, And now I have these. And gosh, they're really pretty. Oh my goodness, I can fly. All right, that's metamorphosis. That's what Jesus is talking about, us recognizing in ourselves. You know, they just said that thing that has teed me off and has driven me crazy all of my life, and yet I've been sitting with God, and He showed me some truth, and I'm looking at it now, and I'm going, that really doesn't bother me anymore. That is so not my problem. Are we experiencing Him? Listen, we're going to have tough times. There's no doubt about it. We've had tough times. And we're going to have more. But goodness gracious, our experience, the abiding faith we have in God's motives for us will sustain us to completion in Christ Jesus because He's already promised that. But if you're not experiencing God, if you're not, then it's time to be honest. Okay, be honest, at least with yourself, preferably with another Christian. There are people here that would love to talk with you about it. If your honest answer is that you're experiencing something different. Because see, the thing about it is endless discussion of what we know and what we want to believe That's going to leave us functionally defeated. We can talk and talk and talk and study and study and study till the cows come home. And yet, we will functionally still behave as we always have before. Recognize this. I mean, do you look around at others and you think, I must be doing something wrong. 
Because I seem to be a whole lot more messed up than they are. And the sad part is, you're using a superficial lens to see that. If y'all were to get honest, if y'all were to sit in a room together by yourselves and just tell each other what's really going on in your hearts, you'd realize nobody got that kind of life. Everybody's got stuff. Mankind lost. Mankind lost, and we, we need to be honest about whether God has gained it back for us. Doubt of God's character. Doubt of his motives. Doubt of his feelings towards you is going to leave you trying to muscle through on human discipline. And that is absolutely futile and exhausting. I want you to listen to the full circle. Tell me if this is what we've really seen in Jesus' prayer. He had glory with his Father before it all began. And then mankind lost access to eternal life with God. But God has chosen to rescue people. He has given them to his Son with whom he is one. The Son gives them eternal life, fills them with His joy, sanctifies them by the truth, and creates oneness with Himself and with His Father. These believers share a unity and purpose so astounding that it causes others in the world to believe also. All believers see the Son's glory, and experience the love of the Father. And the presence of Jesus Christ in them. And then they live eternally with God. The Son returns to the glory that He had with the Father before it all began. The Father is glorified for all eternity. That, my friends, is the good news. That is the gospel.